This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for December 15th, 2022. I'm Charles Hayden coming to you from a black void if you're watching the video cast because I, I am working from home today. And I'm here with George Edelman, editor-in-chief of No Film School. Hello. Uh, co-host Gigi Hawkins. Hello. Co-host Todd Blankenship. Hello. Today we are talking about the power of considering a filmmaker's intent when you evaluate your opinion on a film. We are talking about advice and does it matter? We are talking about HBO removing Westworld, which is bold. And we're going to follow all that up with an Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. So first topic, and this is a heated one in my film social media, actually, is to what extent do we care about the intent of the creator when we evaluate a film. And uh, George, you want to tee us up? Yeah, so I want to present this to you guys and kind of why it's on the top of my mind, why I think it matters, and then kind of go around the horn here and hear what everybody's experience and and intents are as filmmakers. So my, like, one of the things that gets me the most jazzed about movies, jazzed, <laughs> the most excited <laughs> The thing that makes me like stuff in general in the world is interpretation and analysis. Like I like that's what I'm drawn to is like meaning and intent. And that's why I love any art. And that's what I'm looking for whenever like I'm watching stuff. That's what gets me going. So when I see a movie like Tar by Todd Field, which is very much a, you know, there's a lot of room to think about this and interpret and and read into and like that's all I wanted to talk about. So when I talked to Todd Field, which was awesome, writer, director of Tar, among other things, on this podcast, I was sort of like, hey, let's talk about what you meant, you know? And he was very like, well, what do you, you know, I'm not going to say or deny, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to confirm nor deny. And when I proposed certain thoughts, he was like, yeah, that works. I'll, I'll go with that. But I'm not like, that's not what I'm in it for. And it was a reminder to me that so often, it was like reading those books, like for those of you who've never read them, but old timey stuff, like when Peter Bogdanovich badgered John Ford endlessly and wrote all these books interviewing him and was like, but did you mean blah, 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 blah. And the searchers and John Ford with his eye patch and cigar was just like, it's a fucking movie kid, like get over <laughs> it, you know? And that's what that whole thing is a big part of the culture historically. And just kind of like, what do these artists intend? Maybe nothing. Maybe we're just making shit up. Maybe a lot of things. And they just don't want to say. Maybe they're being cagey and cute. Maybe they're like, it's very, look, I'll put it this way. It's really hard to believe that Tar didn't have stuff it meant to say. Very clearly. Like, it's impossible to say, no, no, no. It was just character study. It's more like, I don't want to say because I want to leave it to the conversation, which I respect because I think that's a great approach that he has. But thing I want to put to the group is like, when you think about, I want to make a movie, I want to tell a story. 
And then when you're in the process, how much do you think about what you're trying to say? How much are you trying to put down things that you want experiencers of this thing to pick up? Like, and how much are you also saying like, well, if I'm heavy handed, then that sucks because I don't want to be that Adam McKay Netflix movie, right? We all hate yeah. that. Like, no, like I, like that's something I push up. So for me, I'm like, that's like the worst thing for me. So like, I, like it's a tricky balance. I get it. Like, I'd rather somebody not intend a single thing and just be like, hey, I made speed. It doesn't mean shit, you know? Yeah. I, I, maybe speed means all kinds of things. I'm not saying anything bad about speed. It's a great movie. But you guys get where I'm going with this. And I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts as creators and as audiences, because this to me is like, it, to me, it's like the most interesting thing about what this all is. I know to a lot of people, it's not. But anyway, that's why I wanted to talk about it. I'm happy to kick it off because I, I think as an emerging writer, storyteller, um, I and filmmaker, I used to approach my stories and shorts with a with an intent to like critique the system. I think in in a way that ultimately led to things like "Don't Look Up," and it never worked. Like my, mm. I, I would all if I was going in with like, well, what am I saying? the story would never work because I'd be stuck to what I'm saying. And I I have been working on a project about the aftermath of a true crime podcast. That's a critique of the true crime world. And it went through the film independent episodic lab. And my biggest problem with it was I was like spouting off the facts about how true crimes ruining of the world in America and blah, blah, blah. And like, look at these stats and like, this is journalism. This is parading as journalism. It's not news. But I wasn't telling a story. And so nobody cared. And and luckily, like I was able to workshop that. And I have had mentors that have guided me back towards the story. But I think if you go in with like, this is what I'm going to say and make people feel and change their minds about like this particular subject, I, I do think sometimes as a younger filmmaker, you will get in your own way. That's a lesson that I've learned, if that makes sense. But on the flip side, I look at the the folks who are are masters of the craft, and there are clearly things that are designed in such an uh, a smart way, but leave you thinking. And and I agree with you, George. Like the best the best thing, the best movies, the best shows, the best anything leave you talking about it or thinking about it like days later. That's I think what I ultimately want to come around to at the end. And some things do it with it's like you're talking about and thinking about what happened, like if it was like Game of Thrones back, maybe not this last season, but certainly in the original, it was more like talking about and thinking about like what the hell was going to happen next. But I, there's another what what it is, which is like, what does it mean? What was it trying to say? So yeah. there are two versions. I, I for me, I kind of I think I just really land somewhere right in the middle. I think it's a, it's a healthy like thought process to sort of start with a core like concept and like sort of build from that. But what I've found, and, and like you said, Gigi, like you can eventually kind of get in your own way if you like really firmly adhere to that a little too much. Like it's, it can almost become like a little bit like, you know, when like a, a corporation has like a cheesy three word, like these are our morals or whatever. And like, <laughs> you're like, but you're not actually doing that at all. So I don't know where, what you're talking about, but like, I don't, you know, it's to me, it's, I just like, I like art that is open to interpretation and I like 
first and foremost, art that comes from a personal place, like something that really feels like it's it's coming out of someone and in a way that's organic. And I would I would you know I haven't actually seen it, but from everything I've heard, the, the Adam McKay Netflix movie kind of felt like, you know, he's like I'm gonna I'm gonna just tell this story and it's going to feel kind of like forced a little bit in, in some regards. So I, I think it's, for me, it's like kind of right in the middle, but at the same time, like there is that part of me that when I, when I see a piece of art, I do want to know where, where it was coming from. Like, I don't know how often I'll listen to a song and, and go look up the lyrics and see if someone's written about what that song is really truly about, you know, and, and, and instead of just like sort of wondering i like to sort of know and then it you know you can appreciate it in a different way but i do i do kind of i don't know i'm right in the middle i think you know i think it's good to sort of like have a have a signpost but don't don't let it keep you from you know writing and and you know spilling out the story i mean for me i like first off we just hatched yet another brilliant business idea because like what you're what you're talking about todd is like rap genius right which started as rap genius and it's just genius right now and like I've gone to genius so many times because I just wanted to hear a bunch of other people's thoughts on lyrics. And I wanted to, and like, they haven't launched it yet. So the four of us need to figure out how to launch movie genius Yeah, where I can have a movie and I can get everyone's annotated. Like it's like frame IO, but for publicly annotated shit where everybody can be like, Oh, this frame is an echo of this. And like, I don't know how you, you work that, that with copyright, but like, <laughs> let's figure that shit out and get rich fuckers. That would be uh, awesome. Uh, it would be so in depth. I mean, we at no one of the big things we've done in my time at no film school is we've done a ton of posts that are like what is the meaning of and what does the ending of blah 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 mean because people do want to hear interpretations of those kinds of open-ended movies like inception or like all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. like what does it mean what is the significance you know all that stuff but yeah i think that for movies would be great and far deeper dive than music because like you said you could do it with frames like you could do it with single shots. Yeah. But then the flip side of all this is like, I listen, uh, Veronica Fitzpatrick is the host of the bright wall, dark room podcast, another great movie podcast. And like, she's vicious about this exact thing where like, whenever anyone tries to bring up like vicious in a wonderful way, like anyone tries to bring up like filmmakers intent, she's like, filmmakers intent doesn't matter. Like mm-hmm. films are cultural texts. They have meanings. They have meanings that exist in the world. And what a filmmaker was trying to say is irrelevant to the reading. I'm like, taking it a little further than she takes it. But it's been a really interesting thing because I am always really curious about filmmaker intent. I'm always worried. I'm like, I find that fascinating, but she's also right that like, there was a great comment someone made the other day where it was like the knives out movies. Like one of the things that makes them so much fun is Ryan Johnson just gets to make movies, making fun of people he really hates. Mm -hmm. And uh, in both glass onion and knife out, there's like some great characters in there that are just like despicable people from the present day. And someone else was like, yeah, that's one of the wonders of a murder mystery. And like, I bet if you look at a great murder mystery from the 20s, there's a bunch of stuff that like, we don't know who they're referencing, but are making fun of very specific people. And in a hundred years, when you watch Glass Onion, you're not really going to understand exactly who Dave Bautista's character is making fun of, but he's still going to be a delicious, enjoyable character, even though you don't get the reference. And so like authorial intent is interesting. Like who is exactly Ryan Johnson making fun of here, but it's also like just one of the parts that makes a movie such a fascinating, like cultural text. But the big thing for me is also like the danger of simplicity. Like after school special might not be a reference that means anything to people under 40, but we had these <laughs> things in the eighties, they were called after school specials and they were like the simplest of moral lessons. 
And as such, they always felt preachy and it became like a shorthand for what you wanted to avoid. But I still think like every good movie or every good TV show is about something and it might not come to a final conclusion about that thing, but it's about things that are bigger than just the story. And that's what makes it so rewarding. I mean, Andor is about like, like the nuanced life of living with fascism and fighting fascism and how that manifests and what that means and how that affects people's lives. And it's beautiful for that reason. Like Andor is magnificent, but it doesn't come to final conclusions. I mean, if there is a conclusion of Andor, it is fascism is bad and you should fight it in all its forms. But it also starts with that. You like, make a that's not the big ending surprise. Like it yeah. starts with like fascism. <laughs> what you're talking about here that oh I mean everybody's kind of referenced it a little bit, but this is where I can go so deep down the rabbit hole. But like when Tony Gilroy talked about Andor, like he was asked specifically, like, is this character Nancy Pelosi? And he was like, <laughs> he was like, no. He was like, it's not any one, like you see parallels to today about law enforcement, about fascism, but like, and he, he rattled off, and I wrote a post about this on No Film School too. He rattled off like, he had a great quote, like, all kinds of stuff through history about uprisings, about government takeovers, about fascism, just like things that I had heard of, things that I hadn't. And it was like the man had done his homework, like it was a topic that was of interest to him. Mm -hmm. So he was coming in informed with like, these are evergreen concepts and problems and I'm displaying them and you can relate them to stuff in your life today, but you can also relate them to a million other things. And that answer was extremely gratifying to me because it was like both there's a lot of depth there. There's a lot of reason to interpret, but there's also a lot of like, you know, all those things. Whereas like I, the point you bring up that's so interesting is with time. So like Citizen Kane is a movie that's very much a commentary on a very specific man at a very specific time. And we're already getting to the point where most people are going to see the movie if they see the movie and know nothing about William Randolph Hearst. And that that's the, that's the real, like at the time, that was the big, like travesty of that movie. But now Kane, the movie probably endures more in, in important cultural ways than the man, which is crazy. Hearst. I mean, even though he has influences all over the place, but that like factor of like what the intent was doesn't matter that like over time, the intent behind like the Iliad and the Odyssey becomes less and less important because nobody even knows who wrote it really. So it just becomes like, how do we think about it? How, how have we thought about it over the years? So I get that, you know, and, and yet there's something there that was by design, which also ends up being important because like if you make a movie that has even a subtle like agenda or impact and it turns the culture, do you have some responsibility or not? Like it, things get really kind of complicated. Mm -hmm. And I know that the filmmaker shouldn't worry about all this. Like this is what, what, this is the kind of thing that paralyzes me as a creative. But like, I think the best creatives are able to be like, fuck that noise. I'm making a good story. Yeah. And then there's this chicken and the egg thing. So I want to ask this question too on this topic for everybody. Like the chicken and the egg to me is when you love something, you start to see patterns, I think, that maybe aren't there. And I do think like in the cases of like a Hitchcock or a John Ford, like if you love the searchers, you might look at it and be like, oh, it's about all this. But the, but the filmmaker might just be like, no, nah, man, it's just a good movie. I'm just telling a good story. And he really might mean that. And you might love it so much that you start to put things on it. 
And then that's where I get in the chicken of the egg. It's just like, is it me loving it and interpreting or is it them? Like, where is the line? And like in that discourse and like, I don't know. Do you guys ever think about movies where you were like, yeah, I love Terminator 2 so much that I started thinking it had parallels to like, I heard, I saw a quote from James Cameron talking about how Terminator 2 was about like police brutality. I was like, really? Really? <laughs> like, <laughs> so like, I don't know. Like, I don't it know makes, that I see that there. What was that? Um, That Shining documentary? Uh, yeah. It was like, oh, good, room perfect example. Perfect that, example. That, see, that was like, I tried to watch, I mean, I'm a huge fan of that film and I tried to watch it, but I was just kind of like, Half of it, I was like, I don't, I don't think so. I, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. Like, I think these guys just love this movie. Yeah, I was just <laughs> like, I, I feel right. like y'all are really going deep in the right. rabbit hole on that. And, and that's kind of, for me, like with like YouTube video essay culture, to me, there's like a type where you're suggesting what something might have been or you're telling me what it was, like you're the expert. And to me, that's kind of like, that's where my, like I said before, I kind of sit right in the middle is like, Leave it open to interpretation. Don't act like it is this thing. Because, um, you know, a lot of times I, f- I feel like that's used for criticism in, in ways that doesn't really make sense to me as well, where it's like, you know, everyone's going to feel, have a certain reaction to something. And, and you know, like there's, there's movies that I think are about a certain thing that I'll talk to someone else and they'll be like, yeah, I love that. It was a, you know, it was, it was a reference to this. And I'm like, no what are you talking about? And, you know, but I, I love that. That's that. And that's, Todd, I think that's the ever, essence of film. Do you ever frame up a shot or write something or like, and think like, I want this to make them subtly experience or think about that. Oh, thing? absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So your intent is always like fingerprints. It's not just like, this looks good. This serves the story. Sometimes you're like, I want to send a message here. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I think that's, that's the job for like, for the most part, but it's like, you know, sometimes it's really obvious stuff, like putting too much headroom for a reason or leading them a certain mm-hmm. direction inside of the screen or whatever. But yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, and, but I would, I would never, I would never be like at the the screening and be like, yeah, that one shot, it means this, you know, like I wouldn't do that. <laughs> right. So if I was interviewing you, you would be the one who is like, it's for them to interpret. It's out in the world now. It's not for me to say what it meant. Or, or I would just be like, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think that's kind of what it was. So you'd be like, the, you'd be like Todd Field. Yeah, Todd like right alignment. In the middle. Yeah. <laughs> I think that it it's interesting because I think about like characters and the choice to make characters that exist in gray areas. And obviously, I mean, you have you guys been watching The White Lotus? Oh yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good. Oh, yes. Good television. Good great, old season of television. television. Television that has sparked many a text thread with my father, who, as you all know, like is a very cringy. He he cringes at most things, so this is a cringy experience for him. But he also can't look away. And 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 I think what's interesting is we see characters that are despicable, but we're still drawn to them, and and that's a very deliberate choice by Mike White. But there's also characters who are uh, just like simple, sleazy guys, like the replacement guy working at the desk who continues to hit on the woman. Like, like, and so we see the spectrum of him creating space where there's like space for interpretation and then a very specific choice that, that guides us, that are guide rails that sort of bring us down that pathway. PSA, if you're missing The White Lotus this week, watch Triangle of Sadness and you, mm-hmm. that will fill that void. Just so I finally, I finally uh, watched that uh, 
the other day and I was like, this is this is really kind of like the, the sister film to White Lotus. Like it, they're kind of in the same universe in a sense, but yeah, it, both, both. The cruise very, is a White very, Lotus cruise. Right. Do you think we're culturally uh, trying to tackle something about wealth? And I think uh, so. What? <laughs> Do you think there's some there's meaning some there, or there. like and glass onion and like all these things are tied? You think something's going on? I don't know. I think, maybe. I think we should leave that open to interpretation. I think. Yeah. I don't see it. I don't see it. Yeah. No. One of the fun things with Mike White is like he's been giving all of these interviews and there's all this stuff where he's like talking about White Lotus and the ending and like in a level of detail that like I just find incredibly refreshing. In terms yes. of his thinking about so many decisions, that is like far at the other end from the Todd field. Mm-hmm. I'm referring to the Todd field as like the field <laughs> where all Todds Todd exist. And Todd field. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think there are other Todds in the Todd field, including yes. Todd field. There's um, dozens of us. <laughs> but it, in the white field uh, of Mike White and other, or the Mike field, I guess, there are other Mikes. Like he's just like talking in interviews and he's like, yeah, I wanted it to be like this because of this. And like, I thought that would be particularly derpy, which would fit the character. I and I was that like, exact sound quote from his interview. And it was satisfying because then it helped me process what that scene was. Yeah. And I was like, yep, that, that totally it. You Like, and what's interesting is as much as there are a billion like reverberations from that scene, it goes back to the thing. It always goes back to with Mike White and so much writing is he's just talking about character and motivation. He's just mm. like, I thought that fit the character and there's meaning culturally to that character and how things represent and Tanya and her inherited wealth. But like, he was like, yeah, I I thought that's what the character would do in that moment. And it would be particularly derpy. And I was like, yes. And you know, you mentioned game of Thrones recently. And like the reason everyone got so angry about game of Thrones is characters start stopped acting in the way we would want that, like in a way that made sense. And the beauty of white Lotus is all of the characters continue to act like themselves. And from that, meaning is derived. Mm -hmm. And the problem I think a lot of people had with Don't Look Now is the characters felt, with the exception of Leo and Jennifer's characters, I actually felt like they sort of became developed enough, but everyone else felt too thin and their character motivations didn't feel coherent. And so it felt like it was like he started with the theme and built back to the characters, as opposed to you start with the characters Mm -hmm. and then you let it, and the characters naturally build to a theme. Mm -hmm. You know what? That reminds me of, because it also brings think, makes me think about Andor and Tar to some extent, but like, it's got to be earned. You know, like if you're going to make them change, you got to earn it. And I think the problem people had with that Game of Thrones was that it was like, it didn't feel earned. Yeah. And I think that not, not like earned, like the, the, the creative earned the right to change it because they always have that, they're God of their world. But the change didn't come by naturally as a result of a continuum of actions and events. Like, it was just like, whoa, 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 where'd that come from? Which yeah. in real life, by the way, happens. Real life is chaos. But the way narrative works, you kind of need to have like, well, we need to see a build there naturally. Like what, what Andor does in the end of that season of TV, the character Andor is like, oh, he really, he really earned this moment. Like he got here. Like it didn't just happen because it was time for it to happen because that's what the story needed or that's what the theme was or that's what the message was. Like, Mm -hmm. that's the thing I think Gigi was talking about actually was that when your message first, then you're like, everything is in service of message. Mm -hmm. And then people are like, this feels like a lie, like a house Mm -hmm. of lies. Whereas when it's like, when it's character first, it's like, oh, and it means something maybe, you know? 
I think yeah. it's so intriguing when you're watching something too, and that that thing is missing, and it, you just feel it almost like within the first five minutes of something, you're like, "Oh, this is going to be one of these where like I don't, I'm just not invested in anybody, and it's going to be a slog." And then there's like other movies that are like they look and feel the exact same, but you're like into the story, and you're like, "Oh, I wonder why that is." It's probably because it's well written, and the characters are making decisions and leading towards something. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Speaking of, what about a vice? So we, we've been having a conversation lately that we wanted to dive into about the concept of advice. I can kick this off because it's a reaction to the other Todd conversation with George. <laughs> he, he really he really launched a lot of takes with that he, interview. Yeah, and, and I, I really, I love that interview um, for a number of reasons. I loved learning about the edit process, how he and his editor were like working seven days a week yeah, really alone weird. in Scotland. And I was like, that's the dream. Yeah. Um, but he, when George, at the end of that interview, you asked what advice he has for emerging filmmakers or people starting out. And he said, advice is cheap. And that just like was a little bit of a Game of Thrones dagger to my side uh, of pain because, you know, as a fan of his work, uh, but also because um, I my my life as a creator has come from people giving me advice that I if I didn't ask and I didn't come from a place of curiosity and looking to learn, I would not have been able to be where I am. And like. Everything from, I remember when I was about to direct my first short film, I got on a call with somebody and asked how to get to action. And of course, I can read books and watch movies and learn all these things. But the untold advice that human to human, like we can tell each other. And the advice that I got was make people feel comfortable on set. And that's like, you know, things like that, that connected with me and then helped me shape my decisions as a leader or a creator. I've picked up advice along the way that has changed my life. Um, so so I, it made me sad that advice, he said advice was cheap because I I think particularly for people like I, women or people of color who don't see themselves in historically in positions of like as screenwriters or as directors, you need that advice to almost like feel like you have permission to be in that space. So that's my hot take on advice. I think it is, I wrote this down. I think. Advice is everything. Todd and Charles, do you guys have like advice experiences or like thoughts about giving it or taking it that are like formative to you? Because I'm kind of curious what your experiences of it are. Do you mean like, because there's kind of a, 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 a fine line, in my opinion, between advice and being taught because, you know, being taught is kind of like extended advice or whatever. And I owe my entire career to pretty much one person. Um, who gave me a ton of advice and was like a huge part of my life. Like if I ever have any sort of modicum of success, I'll, I'm going to have to repay it to that person. But I mean, yeah, there's, there's a, to me, advice to say advice is cheap. I like, I can't think of a statement that I disagree with more. Like it, that makes no sense at all to me that I completely agree with Gigi. It's like, 
I can kind of trace back through my whole career of like just moments where like, um, I mean, a, a really small one, a very, very small one. I went on a gig with the DP who was a lot more experienced than me and my camera rig wasn't built out. And he said, you got to show up to the gig with your, your rig built so you save a lot of time. And that changed every, like I started showing up and I could, <laughs> I could put it, I could slap the camera down on the tripod and I was ready to rock and roll. And everyone's like, oh, you're already ready. Okay. And, and that was a small piece of advice that really made a huge difference in my career. And there's, you know, there's a number of those going back through the years. Like I once worked with a producer from LA who like, he really helped me with uh, dealing with annoying feedback. And he, he gave me a lot of advice about how, cause he's like, I don't know how to give good feedback, like in, in technical terms, like you would need, just address the note, just figure out a way to make my problems go away. And that's, and then that kind of changed everything for me in terms of feedback. And I stopped being mad about feedback. Like, yeah, advice is huge. It's huge. What's interesting for me is there is good advice and bad advice in the world and terrible advice exists. And like, I've grown as an advice giver where I try and have a lot more nuance and context than I used to. Like we even had a thing a couple of weeks ago on the podcast where I was like, when my early writing teacher said it, just write a script good enough and put it in a drawer and people will come find it. And like, mm -hmm. I don't think that's good advice anymore. I think that advice mm -hmm. still depends upon like, you knowing a lot of people and the people you ask to read it and stuff. And so I, I, I've changed on advice, but I think one of the reasons Todd might've reacted that way to psychoanalyze someone I've never met, but it's also <laughs> someone who famously got a lot of great advice from Kubrick on directing yes. a movie. Like he was in Eyes Wide Shut. And he famously like asked Kubrick for his advice on directing a movie. And a lot of that advice played into in the bedroom. Like he's a person who got advice is that if I remember him talking about eyes wide shut, well, is he had a lot of specific questions for Kubrick mm. and like I've had, a, I've had this happen a couple of times. I had this happened recently with a class where it was like the end of the semester. It was the final class. And like, you know, I had like an hour extra at the end. So I answered all of their questions on stuff. And we had an hour of me answering all of their questions they had. And then one of the students who's, you know, like it's a fair question, but one of the students was like, all right, well, if you had one single piece of advice that you could give to help a film student along their way, what would you say? And I was like, I don't know. I got nothing. I just yeah. answered your specific questions for an hour. Like when I'm on set or when I see you do a specific thing, I give you specific things. But I don't know, in terms of one big blanket piece of advice, like don't let the bastards get you down. Like <laughs> I don't, I like it's, it's hard to go broad. It's really easy yeah, to go specific. Yeah. It's really easy when you're like, my client hasn't paid me for six weeks. Like, what are my moves? And I'm like, oh, you look into like where the labor board's issues are and you try and decide how important that client is to you. And like, I can give specific stuff, but the broad stuff is just like, you know, it's, it's way harder. And so I think that that might be, you know, because I don't actually think good advice is cheap, like good, good guidance, good mentorship, people noticing specific things that you need to know and passing that on to you is worth its goddamn weight in gold. But like, a big general sweeping statement, you know, and honestly, I wish I'd gone back and given the advice that Lubitsch gave to Billy Wilder, that Billy Wilder, you know, above famously above Lubitsch's desk, he had a big sign that said, don't be boring. Mm -hmm. And then uh, on top of Billy Wilder's desk, he had a big sign that said, what would Lubitsch do? And um, I don't know, I, I should just say, don't be boring. <laughs> that should be my answer. <laughs> The next time someone says, do you have general advice for all of us? I will say, just don't be boring. I think that the context, Charles brings some context because he was sort of reacting, I think, to the like, what kind of advice would you give in a general sense? And I think 
the other funny thing is that he proceeded to give advice. Yeah. At which point I was just like, I was like, wait, but we're not giving advice right because advice is cheap. And then he was like, as much as he can laugh, I think he laughed. I don't know that he's a big laugher, but, but it was, but it was definitely like, he kind of like got it. But yeah, I think that he was also suggesting that it's cheap in the sense that it's everywhere because it's, it's common. There's, there's so much that it's kind of like, it's not that it can't be super valuable. I think that it's like, there's so much that you could, there's so many people willing to give it or there's so much that like, you kind of need to, like, it doesn't cost anything, but it, but it, not that it's devalued, but I don't know. I can't, I don't know what he, I think, um, like, but what Charles said about this, the level of specificity to advice, uh, and what you're asking someone who you want advice from is, is pretty huge. Cause like, I don't know about y'all, but anytime I'm at any sort of a gathering or party where with, you know, people that I don't really know and I tell them I'm a filmmaker, they go, oh, my such and such wants to do that. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do they get into mm-hmm. the industry? And I, I, that moment is always kind of just like, I, I, there's really no response other than like, you got to just go make movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to. Yes. You got to get with and your it friends also and make triggers- some movies. I think for a lot of us, it also triggers the imposter syndrome stuff. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'm not the person to talk yeah, to about I don't, that. I don't, I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah. what, you know, and every, I've, I've asked that question to so many people at all levels, at, at like high level success. And they're always like, I don't fucking know. Mm-hmm. Like, you like, I don't know anymore. Like, it's different every day. But then they usually do. There's a lot of like defaults of like, go make stuff. But there's also sometimes, I've, I've had some really interesting specific answers where I was like, wow, that's great. Mm. Like, but anyway, that's why I like to ask it. But I think that the specific note is a really good one to try and ask people about specific things so you can get specific advice because there is just so much and there are millions of ways to do these things or to do anything. But it's an interesting question because I also feel like the whole thing we were doing, the whole conversation I had with him, the whole thing we do on this podcast, every episode is about really about advice. Like, so it's kind of an interesting, like, it is like, and it is free, you know? So, yeah, <laughs> so right. I guess right. it is very cheap. Like, <laughs> no film school is free. Like, it's all that, but that's kind of like, it's more on you to figure out what's useful to you mm-hmm. or what you're looking for and how you can apply it. It is everywhere. The internet has made it everywhere. I also think that t- the timing of when you're, what, what advice you're asking for and when you're receiving it and how you're receiving it. Like I have two like networking calls with uh, these directors who have directed TV in over the next two days. And I'm a big fan of their shorts. And like, I know I'm going in to be like, so like, how did you move from indie to directing TV? And what was that like? And what did you learn? And what do you wish you had known? Like, so to kick off a conversation, hopefully. You know, I just think the most important thing like that you're reminding me of, Gigi, because you're a great example of somebody who has this mentality is just like the the, the setting aside ego and being like, I'm just going to try and be a sponge and take in anything I can get. And if any of it's good, great. If none of it's good, whatever. But I'm not going to sit here and pretend I have answers. And I think we often fall in traps of thinking, especially when we're younger, I did, of thinking like, well, I innately know. And if someone else is telling me, then that makes me wrong. 
if I listen to someone else's advice or take their rules, then I'm going to be suddenly wrong and like lesser. And it's the exact opposite thing. Mm. It's what was interesting is as I think before I started to like gain the confidence to actually see myself as a creator, I was, I didn't want to do it because I didn't feel like I knew enough. And this is actually something that we see with like investing, for example, men tend to invest based off of like gut feelings or, or like, well, like let's take the risk and women hold back from investing because they don't fully understand it. And, and so it's interesting that like my experience was like, I need to just read more and do more research and watch more and talk to more people before I can even start doing something. And you're like, I got this. I'm yeah, going to do it. My early days was just like, I know. I was born knowing. Damn it. <laughs> we're, if only we were it took a while to get middle. past that. Yeah. <laughs> it took a while. <laughs> All right. Next up, HBO pulls Westworld. <laughs> what? So what I understand of this is that HBO is taking stuff off HBO Max continually, and it's about tax write-offs, which isn't shocking because we know that that continues to be a huge motivator, but I'm not really sure how that works. Like, how are they getting money? How are they make? how, how is this business smarts to pull things off the streamer? Are they taking a loss somehow? I'm not really sure, but that's what the seemings, that's what seems to be the consensus. But what's, again, really frustrating about these stories is that we spend a lot of money to have subscriptions now to these services mm-hmm. and physical media is, is, is drifting away. Like we don't, we've, a lot of us have liquefied our, our DVD collections and things like, and we're more like, well, I have like 10 streaming platforms, but they're not libraries that we have access to forever. Like there's a lot of movies I have on my like list on HBO max that I just like that are like old movies that I want to have like bookmarked because it's kind of like they're in my digital library and I'll be like, I feel like watching Master and Commander again because I love that movie. Are they just going to take it away from me? Mm-hmm. Now, I believe I still have my DVD of that movie somewhere, but probably <laughs> not for long. But my point is like, this is a weird, constant issue that like our relationship to these companies that own all these products we love is like, well, they still, they own it and they can pull it away and they can bring it back or they can sell it to someone else or like friends. I don't care about friends, by the way, but like, just like, but they can move friends from Hulu to Netflix to blah, 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 to Paramount Plus to Peacock to whatever. And do we have to keep jumping and do we have to own all of them if we care? And that as a, as a consumer, I think is really annoying. As a creator, it's even more problematic because we're not just talking about the Batgirl filmmakers now. We're talking about like, like Westworld. The first season of Westworld was amazing, Fantastic. I thought. And, and it went on for four seasons, so it clearly made them money. Right. I don't understand the business side of this at all, and I haven't done the research on it. But it's just what I've read is that there's a business angle. So again, the, it's just gone. Like, it <laughs> doesn't exist anymore. Like, you can't watch. It's not available it's anymore. It's no longer on their streaming platform. So if they ever did a DVD release... And I don't know with Westworld if they did because I haven't wandered the. It may DVD have been section. post those things. Yeah, being it might have been. Maybe they, they just ran out of thing. space on their hard drive. You know, they just <laughs> needed to free up some room. I love that. Yeah, somebody's could, joke on Twitter was they didn't simple. want to upgrade their iCloud account, and they had to pull simple. something. No, I mean it's also probably about residuals. 
And residuals have always mm. been complicated. And Westworld is clearly one of those shows where the creator is one of the Nolan brothers mm-hmm. and had the power to negotiate for, you know, like famously with Netflix, you are bought. Like you do a show with Netflix, there are no residuals. There's no checks coming later, which is a trade-off many people are willing to make. Big people work with Netflix because they get the budget they want. But like The Irishman, no matter how many times The Irishman is streamed, and I don't know how many times that is. I don't know how uh, much that movie continues, but like- I mean, it's long. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Marty doesn't get any more money. Robert De Niro doesn't get any more money. It is a buyout when you do Netflix. But HBO has- a much more complicated situation of being a network from the early 80s, having traditional cable-style contracts, which have residuals, which have ongoing legal commitments. And so it is a... And you know what? I'm going to venture a guess that Westworld had some generous back-end for Nolan that they were able to negotiate. Like, the crude deals tend to be fixed, but creator deals, there's some flexibility. And I, I mean, also that, remember HBO is part of Warner Brothers. Like, Netflix is a new media company. I mean, they did start with yeah. DVDs, but they... But like Warner's is like this big, messy, massive monster thing. But the bigger, weirder part of it all for me is that like when the merger happened and it's like, okay, we're not going to release this thing so we can write it off. Like, I get that. Like, okay, it's weird, but I get that. But like merger's finished. Like I log into HBO Max now and it's like 50% reality TV shows, which as I defended last week on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, you know, like. Reality TV is our best defense from our AI overlords, so I'm not going to like crash <laughs> it. Like it, it, it you know, uh, AI is not going to be throwing wine glasses at each other anytime soon because it won't have the thrill of knowing wine really got in someone's eyeballs, um, <laughs> which is what we need from that. But like it, the merger's done. So at this point, when you're pulling content, like are they trying a beanie baby strategy of deliberately creating scarcity where it's like. And then yeah. next year, they'll be able to be like, Westworld is back. And they'll run well, those like ads. The, uh, what's the it? sandwich? The McRib. The McRib is back for a limited time only. <laughs> Westworld's the McRib. Or the Princess Diana I mean, Beanie Bear. Westworld is cut, a lot like a McRib. Yeah, or the Prince. Yeah, Snyder Cunt. So I, I wonder about those moments where it's about creating marketing events for the return of content. Um, well, what I hate about it most isn't just as a consumer. What I hate about it is that people make these things and they exist and then no one can, like, I think that it sucks for it to not be, like, I guess it kind of goes back to the old days of like, well, it only aired on TV, like when it was on and it was never on again. So it's like the creators didn't have these things sitting in perpetuity. We're like a movie, like Gone with the Wind came out and it was Gone with the Wind unless there was a re-release, like there's no watching it again. So. I mean, maybe maybe it's precious and kind of modern to say like, well, it sucks that people can't watch it any time. But it does suck because with a lot of things, they can watch it any time. Yeah. And it is annoying when it's like just off and gone and the decision is not. I mean, there's yeah, there's weird. There's a lot of weird stuff going on here that I think bumps if you're if you're anywhere in this, like caring about this stuff or like someone says like Westworld season one was masterful. And then you're like, well, shucks. I can't ever watch it. Yeah, there's got to be at least one person out there who had one episode left. There's got to be one person. (laughs) And they're like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) What happened? (laughs) I I think the thing that bumps me the most about, it just bums me out, is that it's just so taking away from the audience. Like what this, I get, I understand that there's a, 
there's profit to be had, but like this, what, what, what is the point of having an entertainment company if you're going to like take away entertainment? And this is somebody who I am discovering the show Big Love right now. I'm the only person who's watching it in real time, probably like because it's from 2006. It's very refreshing because nobody has fillers in their face. They all just look like actual 40 year olds and it's delightful. I'm like on board with polygamy on the show. And, <laughs> and, and to think that they could take big love away from me, like this is, it's rude. It's just rude. <laughs> I think that when we pay for these services, we do have this mindset that it's like, I get access and that's not entirely true. Like it's a very temp it's like a very temporary relationship and that's that's frustrating. And I don't know if someone's gonna change that at some point, but like, yeah, I, I've heard a lot of people say it over and over again, but it's like physical media still matters or downloads matter or like but like Todd referenced like hard drive space. Like, yeah, this is we're in a weird in-between stage. But then again, like I wouldn't mind if these if they went to a model where you had to buy and own the physical things because that model supported a lot of the kinds of movies I like the most. Yeah. Like the DVD sales thing is part of what created a boom of movies that were interesting and mm. cool for mm -hmm. a long time. And that, that when that vanished, everything had to open big. So maybe there's a way back. I don't know. Well, also the other thing we forget about with DVD sales is that DVD sales and Blu-ray sales kicked off a whole generation of archival restorations because they made money. Yes. I mean, I'm not a Star Trek person. I don't dislike it. I just never got into it. But like, they went back, and for Star Trek The Next Generation, which was a standard definition show, when Blu-ray came out, they used the money from DVD sales to justify doing an entire HD up-res restoration of Star Trek The Next Generation in which they redid every single VFX shot from scratch because all the VFX shots were in standard def and they could easily up-res the picture because the picture was 35 millimeter and that was easy. They just rescanned, And then they redid all the VFX at 4K and then they sold the Blu-ray and it made money. And you can read yeah. interviews with the team who did it, who was like, this is amazing. Like we now have a, like you can consider this the new original, but there's other shows from the nineties that are also standard def that they're like, yeah, but streaming budgets are not enough to justify that restoration. And there's a lot of movies from the past that got these amazing preservation restorations justified yeah, I, by the Blu-ray revenue that is now I gone. I really loved that. I really loved that stuff as a big, you know, audience, like movie watcher lover. And I remember them doing it with the first, the 60s Star Trek. And one of the funny things about it was that it was like, damn, this stuff looks like janky as hell. Because even though they replaced a lot of the VFX, like nobody had ever seen those sets and shots in like blown up on HD. Yeah. Like everybody was watching them on a TV off bunny ears, maybe in black and white. Like, so it was like a whole different take, but like, so the people making it were like, what are they going to see? Like, it's a different, but I still love that cult, that whole moment in history. And it was so fun, like special features and all of that. Like, it's a shame we lost. I that. do. I do really miss special features. Me too. The commentary. I wonder mm -hmm. if we're, if the next iteration of this is something closer to like blockchain NFT, this is not my wheelhouse, mm. but instead of like getting a hard copy, Blu-ray, whatever, we we do get to own it and they maybe they do release in blocks or something, but then we don't have the risk of 
losing it or having, you know, whoever at wherever decide we're going to remove it from the streaming platform. It would be kind of like we, instead of downloading it, we have like a license to stream it forever and that we'd pay extra and that it would include other stuff. That would be cool. I mean, there was because thing, also, Paramount had a thing like that where you would get the Blu-ray and it would come with this like digital, very high end streaming thing. The word purple comes to mind and I don't purple. know why. It, it, Paramount it was, purple. Was it Paramount Purple? I don't remember, but like I remember for some reason I I did it for Saving Private Ryan and I watched the 4K Blu-ray. I was writing up something about like dealing with noise correction in 4K Blu-ray and like it came with this streaming copy for this dedicated platform that like wasn't a monthly subscription. Like you bought the Blu-ray and you just got this online streaming thing and a thing and it had a Roku app. And I was like, this is a great model. I fucking love this model. And like, let us not forget, Criterion Collection still putting out 4K Blu-rays. Yeah. Like we could all decide to go buy it. And like, I have a bunch of smug friends who are like, oh, you stream? I only buy physical discs. And like, I, you know, I'm not one of them, but I respect them more and more every day as much as it's ridiculous that they do that because they, they've got a full shelf with all this stuff. I think I've told this story on this podcast before about whatever, it was like three years ago when Texas had that really big like apoc- snow, snow apocalypse thing where like we all didn't have internet or power for a long time. When I had power, I was really glad to have some of the Blu-rays I had because that was literally all. I, like, I think I watched There Will Be Blood like eight times because I have like five Blu-rays. <laughs> and but, you watched it all with your two-year-old daughter yeah, and it's really like, shaped her worldview. This is Daniel Plainview, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy, are we going to be an oil team together? Yeah, we had milk. We had milkshakes. It was like, you know, we got all in the theme and everything. <laughs> That's good um, parenting. Yeah, I also yeah. have the Blu-ray of There Will Be Blood, and I should keep it on standby uh, for the yeah the, and the, the impending AI apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the AI can't attack our Blu-rays. Blu-rays, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can't take that away from us until there's a virus that infects the Blu-ray players. But we're not going to get there. All right, guys, I think that's our episode. I think we are out of time, so we're bumping yes. Astro Film School two weeks in a row. But we will get to your Astro Film School next week. We promise. Um, those of you who are waiting, we're, we're making it through our asking film schools because we like these questions. Um, I'm on the internet. I'm on Mastodon, Charles Hanep, uh, barbecue.snoot. Yeah, that's the only place I'm on the internet anymore. I don't do the rest of the internet. I like uninstalled all the others. So that's, that's where you find me. And um, yeah. I respect that. I'm at Lost in Graceland across the internet uh, and on Mastodon, barbecue.snoot. Words that I say, but I don't understand. Uh, I'm Todd Blankenship. You can find me at MI Filmmaker on YouTube and Instagram. And I'm George Gentleman, and you can find most of me and everything we talked about today at nofilmschool.com. And please like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast and leave comments and send us questions. And while we've been pushing the questions off lately, we will answer them and we like them. Um, send them to editor at nofilmschool.com. And thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.